Okay, so uh, I think it's a common concern for folks that adding seats to a table means that they have to sacrifice their own elbow room. And that is not the point of the report. The point of the report is presenting opportunities to correct, like Tilsa was saying, the historical exclusion while also solving your labor shortage. You're listening to Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli. And in today's episode, I chat with Eva Kwan, Talissa Watson, and Shannon Miller, three of the co-authors of Trillium's most recent report, Bridges Not Barriers, Advancing Racialized Women in Ontario Manufacturing. Over the course of preparing this report, doing the research, reviewing notes, and uh, you know, the countless edits and reviews, I had the advantage of having countless conversations, offline conversations, with the authors. I found a great deal of value in those conversations because, as I read the final report, those conversations gave me a depth of understanding that I don't think I would have had without them. That's the reason I wanted to put them on this podcast. So for me, the thing that resonated the most in this report was the discussion about implicit biases. Identifying them, changing them, addressing them, just realizing that they're there. To me, that's the hardest thing to change because, well, by their nature, implicit biases are invisible. I don't mean to detract from the other lessons presented in the report. They're all hyper-relevant. But for me, realizing that I, too, have blind spots was a big wake-up call. It was a wake-up call because I consider myself somewhat, I hate using the term woke, but for lack of a better term, yeah. So I decided to turn that introspective lens in on myself, and here's how that started. The other day I was discussing this report with my girlfriend, and she challenged me on some of my own implicit biases towards women, to which I answered, what are you talking about? I'm so pro-woman. You know, I I even want a daughter when we have kids. I, I can't wait to have a daughter. To which she asked me why. To which I said, because I believe girls are more emotionally mature than boys. Little boys are dumb. To which she said, so you think it would be easier to raise a girl? To which I said, probably. To which she said, so without even being born, you have certain expectations of your unborn daughter compared to your unborn son. To which I said, nothing. Having biases doesn't necessarily detract from your character, for the most part. We all have them. The question is, what are you prepared to do about them? For me, it meant understanding that if I didn't want to raise a dumb son, then I needed to make sure that I didn't raise a dumb son. And it meant more than just hoping that I have a daughter because they're easier to raise. The report itself highlights the successes of three racialized women in manufacturing and their stories. And their stories are far more interesting than my little epiphanies that I'm having here. They've made it. Have a listen and see for yourself how we can get more racialized women making it in Ontario. And here we are virtually with the authors of the report. I'm going to give them an opportunity to introduce themselves, starting with the person in my upper left-hand corner, which is Talissa Watson. Hello, Talissa. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. My name's Talissa, and um, in terms of my, I guess, academic background, I've been at Western University for about six years, um, starting with my honors specialization in global economics and my BA, um, just four-year-long program. 
And I most recently graduated from the Ivy Business School, where I completed my Master's of Science in Management with a focus in business analytics. In regards to my relationship with Trillium, I've been working with Trillium for about a year now. Um, I started off last summer, so the summer of 2020, as a summer analytics intern. And then starting in September till present day, I am working as a research associate. And most of my work has really been um, in supporting gender research projects, um, such as the, of course, the Racialized Leaders Project that we will be discussing today. Sounds awesome. And uh, Talissa, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about uh, your involvement in the graduation? Were you uh, just uh, attending it? or was? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I uh, graduated as like the uh, spring convocation uh, valedictorian. So I did get to speak on behalf of my class, which was definitely an honor. I respect and learned from so many of my peers. So I was uh, honored to have been uh, given that opportunity. Very cool. The next person on my screen is Eva Kwan. Hello, Eva. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me here. So I'm Eva. I'm a PhD candidate at Western University, and I study industrial organizational psychology. So what that is, is using science to study the workplace. So we think about why people behave the way they do, how can we motivate them, how do we measure and change human behavior, how do we recruit and retain talent. And so as you're hearing these things, you kind of see, well, obviously, she likes working on workforce diversity projects as well. I really, I got involved with Trillium before the pandemic in 2020 as a MyTax intern, and then after, where it's a state on as a research associate. Very cool. And the final author is Shannon Miller. Hello, Shannon. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. So I attended the McMaster University School of Labor Studies, both for undergrad and my graduate degree. And during my time at McMaster, I was first exposed to manufacturing by working in HR at an automaker which brought me back to school and the Automotive Policy Research Center, where I concentrated on gender, age, and job quality in automotive manufacturing just over the last couple of decades. Uh, that research was my start in manufacturing workforce diversity and inclusion, which brings me to Trillium, where I've been a program officer since February. And my personal editor, because Lord knows I make lots of spelling mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, not many. Not many. <laughs> You're <laughs> Don't too be kind. too hard on yourself. <laughs> So the three of you have recently put out a report, Bridges Not Barriers, Advancing Racialized Women in Manufacturing. This, on the surface, seemed fairly similar to a report that we put out back in February, but it's not, is it? It's a little different because this one kind of drills a little bit deeper down. Um, I'm going to invite one or all three of you. Tell me a little bit about why this report was written, because this, I believe, came from, um, it was the brainchild of one of one of you, wasn't it? Who was it? Yeah, <laughs> I guess I'll uh, speak up now then um, as well, too. Um, so we were able to put together a report in February, our first gender uh, research project, um, which focused on woman involvement in uh, manufacturing at a high level and focusing as well on organizations that are firms, rather, that are making progressive efforts to include and diversify their workforce by um, bringing more women um, to the table. Now, with uh, this research project that is uh, most recent, the one that focuses on racialized um, women, it really came from um, our interest in, in that first project where we started to kind of uncover some data that hinted that the experiences of various groups of women was different, and especially for racialized women. 
And it's something that we wanted to explore further and better understand. For myself, as a uh, self-identifying racialized woman and a person studying management, it was important for me uh, to understand what the magnitude of these discrepancies really were for racialized women um, who were leaders in manufacturing, whether it be in terms of uh, pay representation, but looking at the opportunity as well to amplify their stories and um, you know the positions that they're into make decisions that shape the culture of their firms, but also the industry. Um, so it was great to put together this project and work alongside, of course, um, Eva, as well as Shannon and, and Brendan as well, um, to bring this forward and understand what the future of racialized women in leadership will really look like for this, for this uh, sector and under, uncover the opportunities that really exist here. So the thing I like about this report is the fact that there are tangible steps, there are lessons, and I found that Trillium in general tends to work like that, which I like, because I, you guys remember, I started back in um, like late January, early February, and that first report was kind of like my trial by fire, and I liked it, I found it informative, I've learned a lot from it, and now with this report, we've got a little bit more of that, so why don't we jump right into those, how, it was six specific, do we want to call them lessons or steps or... I'm, I'm going to throw it to you three. Let's, let's jump into it. What, uh, what did we learn? Yeah, I think uh, we can look at them definitely as lessons. The first one of which was um, connected very much so to our first report, which is the highlighting the importance of data, collecting and analyzing the data. And if I were to summarize what that really means, it's, it's about knowing the terrain, knowing the landscape. Um, it's about evidence-based information to inform our next steps, whether at an establishment level or a government level to support a, a very diverse uh, labor workforce. So let's talk about that. What kind of data are we talking about collecting here? For sure, there's a variety of data that we'd be collecting, whether it be callback rates or uh, the types of roles that uh, different groups, subgroups of the population are a part of. Are they part-time? Are they full-time? Are they contract? And why might that be the case? Understanding uh, what the salary breakdowns really look like as well. Um, are there specific groups that might be making less than others? And, and again, why that might be the case. Un uncovering opportunities to write those uh, differences that we might have seen historically moving forward um, in the industry. And I think something that's important is not just collecting and analyzing, but reporting on, on the demographic, occupational, and labor earnings. So we're able to bring visibility then to companies that are doing a great job, like we did in our first report, and also highlighting um, racialized people that are in the industry and, and making a difference, like the three women we got to highlight a part of this project. We're able to self-identify and be a part of making the, making the data um, more, more real, more real to the audience, more real to us. You mentioned callback rates. That's a, I like that because it's very it's a very specific uh, sort of measure, right? Because then you can see of the people we called back, they had this characteristic, that characteristic, that education. There's a, are you in a position to comment on the kind of data that should be looked at? Because if if we've got an HR professional who's listening to this right now and they're thinking, okay, I want to action on this. Callback rates is one thing. What else? What other kind of data? do we need or do they need to call a collect and be me me uh, measure and monitor? I, I can jump in here. Um, so as far as callback rates, look at your applicants. So in the 
look at what racial background and gender that your applicants are identifying with. And then afterwards, see among the people that are selected for these interviews, is it at the same rate as the application rate? So if half of your applicants are racialized women, or half of the people that you're giving interviews to also racialized women? And if not, why is that the case? Is demographic not playing a role here? Or are we truly looking at just the qualifications and the skills that people are bringing into the company? Interesting. Okay. As, you know, spoiler alert for the report, we've realized that the, the cultural composition of management in manufacturing is not reflective of the cultural composition of Ontario writ large, is it? No, it definitely isn't. And I, I guess just to highlight some data points we did get to um, showcase in the report itself, when we look at the overall workforce of Ontario, it's about 13% racialized women. When we look at manufacturing, it's about 10%. When we look at management um, across Ontario, it's uh, about 8% of racialized women occupy those management roles across Ontario. And in, man in uh, manufacturing, it's about 4.6%. So there's opportunities there uh, definitely to um, at least make it more reflective of what it is in Ontario and even moving a bit for forward and pushing that dial. I like that. Okay, so you've got Take a look at the applicants. Just, just that's a that's a pretty simple step, isn't it? Just oh, you you've posted a job for a new millwright, and you get X number of applicants. Who are they? Where are they coming from? And why aren't you calling them back? Okay, I like that. It's the callback rates, in addition to a few other things that can be looked at with the data. For example, where people are concentrated in. So the lines of work that they're concentrated on, whether they're concentrated on temporary part-time jobs or full-time permanent jobs. So higher, more secure and higher quality jobs. That also needs to be used to supplement your demographic data on your workforce, just to really be sure um, where those gaps are and how to correct them and figure out how to correct them. Cool. Let's move on to the second point, shall we? Number two is investing in employee education and development. So the manufacturing sector now has to attract the modern workforce and follow through on the promise that it's a path to pursue. So if the manufacturing sector wants the workforce, they'll need to that they that they're going to need to be competitive, they'll have to invest in developing that workforce. Um, our title, Bridges Not Barriers, was inspired by our conversations with Cassandra Dorrington, who's the president of the Canadian Aboriginal and Minority Supplier Council, CAMC. And in our conversations, she talked about not just opening the door, but building a bridge in and how that is access. Providing access to opportunities for education and development is crucial for advancing your workforce, and manufacturing is no different. And those opportunities, they can be offered through different mediums, whether it's through nonprofit organizations, educational institutions, and the manufacturers themselves. And with that one, we really recommend it because offering those opportunities, you also increase awareness of the path to manufacturing and offer people to op the opportunity to prepare to enter in advance. So an example of that would be subsidized pre-apprenticeship programs, where you reduce the cost barrier to entering the trades. So instead of focusing on, okay, well, um, our trades, they're not super duper diverse because racialized women are not in the trades. Do they have access to information for how to get into it? The cost barriers that they're facing, how are we minimizing those, right? So what? So let's just say offering these programs, who should be offering them? Is it at the company level? Is it at the government level? Is it a, some combination of the two? How do we move that needle forward? So different institutions can definitely offer it, educational institutions for one, nonprofit organizations and government agencies, but we recommend that manufacturers also pick up the mantle and offer it as well. 
ideally everyone that you can attract and keep should get that training. And I say ideally because it's also important to be mindful of the promotional materials and the communications for these opportunities. Something as simple as the language that you use in advertising these opportunities or the images that you use. Um, is it inclusive? Can everyone see themselves entering and staying in that program and then continuing to advance within manufacturing? I want to drill down a little bit on that because I remember when we chatted about this offline, that one kind of really tripped something for me. What's some of the language that could turn people away from an application? So think of the language that is used very often within manufacturing or within the trades. So like journeyman, a lot of it is very, that the language and the imagery is very male focused. And it's a very specific kind of man that you usually see advertised for that line of work. So being mindful of that, maybe also advertising in your advertising materials, racialized women for these opportunities. So images of racialized women that are entering or that are within these opportunities. I guess there's probably not a lot of data out there on what specific words are more they have a propensity to turn more applications away. I guess we don't know what those words are. And I guess maybe number two could probably be, could afford a little bit more study, right? I'm going to jump in there. There are actually a lot of studies about specific words that align with male versus female stereotype. Um, I think it was Canadian researchers that published the study and it's available online. So for example, sometimes you may have words like collaborate and these may align with uh, stereotypes that women feel more aligned with. But there may be some words like assertive, and those may be that may be a word that men feel they align more with. So by using more of the words that collaborate or something that brings out images of helping society, you're able to attract women into these job ads, for example. So the word collaboration could tend to be more associated with or could maybe appeal more to a female applicant. Am I hearing that correctly? Or it's more so that some of the words might conjure these images of, hey, maybe I don't belong here. These don't align with the audience they're looking for. But when you're using words like collaborate, um, well, anyone can collaborate on a project, but because communal images are more so associated with women, um, that, that just kind of helps with these job ads and helping people see they have a place within manufacturing. So that's number two. What's the third one? Let's, uh, let's jump into number three here. Number three is also about development and opportunities. But in this case, it is specifically on investing in entrepreneurship, education, and program development. And so one way to do this is through connecting with CAMC, so the Canadian Aboriginal and Minority Supplier Council. So they're able to link you with programs and training for building leadership skills, or link you with mentors who have faced similar challenges. Um, have they also encountered these different barriers like racism, sexism, et cetera? And then we know that these business owners end up creating economic um, opportunities for their communities. So this is more of sustainable change. It's not a one-time program. It's if you give and invest in these entrepreneurs, giving them loans, for example, to start up their business, they can create long-term change for the communities. And going back to Cassandra that we quoted earlier, she had mentioned that by investing in entrepreneurship, um, we're building businesses that help people put a roof over others' heads, helping the neighborhood, helping feed the children. It's not simply about one person and short-term change. So our third lesson is creating opportunities specifically for entrepreneurs. Can you say that again? You kind of broke up a little there. What was the third one? Oh, <laughs> it's to create opportunities specifically for entrepreneurs. 
because entrepreneurial training is a little different than like managerial training or anything like entrepreneurial training is a bit more of the more difficult skills to acquire the, the softer skills, right? Is that, is that accurate to say? But I would say they need access to different resources. For example, where can they get these financial loans? Um, how do they get to certain resources? How do they access introductions to like corporate partners, for example? All these things that maybe someone in management might not need to do, but someone that's starting a brand new business as a owner might need access to. How do they get through um, all the paperwork that has to be done? And if you have an added layer of being an immigrant, for example, do you know um, the Canadian landscape and how to navigate all that. I never even would have thought of that because I, I, and again, I'm speaking as a white guy here, but if I wanted to start a company, I know that there are, you know, I go to a bank and say, hey, can I have some money? Uh, here's my business plan. To me, that seems like, you know, pretty obvious stuff. Are you saying that some of the more recent entrants to Canada might not have that right away? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so for us that grew up in Canada, we might know other entrepreneurs. We can ask them for their knowledge directly. If their upbringing is a bit different, they don't know entrepreneurs, they don't know any business owners, they don't really have a blueprint to follow. They don't have someone to guide them through the process. So with these programs that CAMC has, for example, they have access to tap into a more supportive ecosystem that can help navigate this system. Is this where the quote came from? Good leaders had good leaders? Shannon, you told me that quote. Did I? I, yeah, I said, oh, that felt familiar. But yeah, yeah. I think came... I said something like, or good mentors had good mentors. Something that's similar. it. Yes, yeah. that's it. So is that what number three is? Providing mentorship to people who can then be mentors? Mentors as well as formal programs, so education and training. Okay. Like how to make an elevator pitch, for example. That was something we had learned from our interviews. That's important. But sometimes if we don't get the opportunity to use and learn these skills, um, then we don't develop them, then we kind of keep advancing. So I feel as though, and this, this goes back to a quote that someone told, I don't know if it was her quote or not, but she said to, she's an accountant. And she said to me, the dumbest guy will put his foot forward before the smartest woman. Do you feel that's true? I was just going to say, unfortunately, it, 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 it is, it tends to be true in, in, in some capacity. And in research has shown that um, women, they might be less uh, willing to apply for jobs that they feel they might not be qualified for, while a man, they might uh, make, you know, eight of the 10 things that are required for that role, but they'll still apply um, in, in that sense. Tillis, I'm going to pick on you for a little bit here, because I had to drag it out of you that you were valedictorian, <laughs> didn't I? I guess so. <laughs> I had to drag it out of you that this report was, like, you you did kind of put the impetus forward for this, didn't uh, you? Yeah, putting together the proposal and such, yes, definitely. <laughs> Why didn't you lead with that? Why did I have to drag that out well, of you? You know, that is a good question. I'm not, I'm not completely sure I have an answer for you right now, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure. <laughs> Shannon, I, did I see you had your hand up there? Collaborative mindset, full circle, that word came back. There it is. There it is. Mm -hmm. Before we go forward, Talissa, so, did you have your hand up for a sec? Did you want to um, add something yes, else? Yes, just something briefly to touch on Eva's point, um, which is something that came up a lot yeah. in the report, which is the ecosystem of support. And, and, I, and I believe that's what we were really getting at um, within number three, which is that some, um, some, some people, they have um, access to this ecosystem of support 
while other groups might have more challenges if they have a different upbringing, which is exactly what Eva was saying. And so building in those programs to establish, establish that. So that was three. Shall we go to four? What's the fourth one? So number four is ensure procurement practices are accessible to a diverse network of suppliers. So simply put, diversify your supply chain. Factor that in as part of your business strategy. And that includes prioritizing working with small and medium enterprises as part of your business strategy. It not only benefits the communities that these businesses operate in, but it also benefits the companies that diversify their supply chains. Supply diversity, which I can explain in a moment, it makes sure that these companies are looking at their sourcing strategies and being more inclusive in their practices, which ultimately benefits the larger manufacturers as well, because they have access to these very diverse companies that are more likely to be owned by racialized men than they are to own larger companies with these very diverse staff and their own very unique ways of solving problems. So that ultimately benefits larger manufacturers as well. So Shannon, why don't you tell us a little bit more about supplier diversity and what you learned through CAMC? So lesson four builds on Eva's point on the importance of market access opportunities through pathways to leadership and entrepreneurship. And our discussion of inclusive procurement practices just means diversifying your supply chain. Um, we became familiar with it through Camp C and their work and the fact that it means providing opportunities to indigenous and minority owned suppliers to become suppliers to larger companies across North America. And the socioeconomic impact of that not only affects the communities that these companies operate in because the people who own them, they come from different backgrounds, they hire people from different backgrounds, so slightly more equitable employment practices, but it also um, increases business growth and competitive advantage for these companies because of the fact that these diverse companies have their own ways of solving problems. What did you call that? Market access opportunities? Yes, market access opportunity. I like mm -hmm. that. That's, I, I think if you're, I think that should be a goal. Shouldn't it, it should be. For any program, just let, let's create some market access opportunities. Yes, and that for, like I mentioned before, focusing on small and medium enterprises that are more likely to be owned by racialized women than larger companies would be. Um, the procurement contracts aren't always the most accessible, especially from larger companies. The procurement contracts are quite massive. So something such right. as, yeah, so something like making those procurement contracts, uh, breaking them down into smaller contracts that more companies can bid on, that's more opportunities, and that the economic impact of that also trickles into those communities, right? So, Talissa, did you have something you wanted to add? Um, yeah, just a quote from the report, um, which was, of course, um, said by one of the remarkable um, uh, women that we did get a chance to speak with, uh, Kathy Chang, the founder and president of Redwood Classics. And she said uh, for her every year, um, she was finding her voice um, becoming stronger and stronger through the development programs that she had access through through supplier diversity. And she also hit, uh, touched on the fact that supplier diversity is a wonderful business strategy at the end of the day that fo fo forces um, a company to look internally and externally on what their sourcing strategies are. Um, so I think that really summed up, you know, exactly what that number five is and, and how important it is to communities and sharing that generational wealth. Number four, you mean? Number four, definitely. Are we on to five? Let's hear number five. Um, so number five in the report is about developing and showcasing diverse and culturally competent leaders 
And if I were to sum it up in two words, I would say it's about providing context. So it encourages perspective sharing, compassionate uh, leadership, where they are recognizing that the needs of different employers and, and even different leaders is not the same. Um, it's that inclusive leadership where we're ensuring that uh, effective policies and, and decisions um, that are going to affect particular communities, that those communities are part of the dialogue, as well as their allies who are working actively um, to include those, those, those people. So it's not only about bringing racialized women uh, to the forefront and being a part of the conversation, but even their allies um, as well so that we are encouraging that perspective sharing and, and ensuring that we are correcting historical inclusion while solving that market um, labor market issue that um, you know does exist, what Shannon was able to touch on within number four. Very interesting. Does anyone else have anything to add to five? Um, yeah, I guess I would just add the uh, something that we touch on in the port as well, which is just the importance of representation. Um, and, and those intersectional uh, relationships there. So it's like um, it, we were talking about, it was probably off, off recording, but, you know, being able to, to see yourself um, by seeing somebody else who looks like you. So seeing yourself there because uh, you saw that representation. So it's that importance of including them in part of the dialogue and knowing how important them being a part of the dialogue is for future leaders and, and future um people uh, who will be employed within this manufacturing sector as we move forward and take advantage of the opportunity that is, is very much um, in front of us. Seeing yourself represented, I can personally attest to how important that is. Growing up as an Italian Canadian, when your last name ends in a vowel and no one else's does, and then you go to someplace like Canada's legislature in Ottawa and you look down and you see people who look like you and representatives who have your last sounding kind of, they have your sounding last name. You're like, oh, okay. And then sitting next to them, you'll see a man with a turban and sitting next to that person is someone in a wheelchair. Like, this is what I've seen on the floor of our legislature. And I think that is, yeah, if I can just add my two. Yeah, I agree. I think seeing yourself represented in things is critical. Shannon. Yes, uh, seeing yourself reflected is incredibly powerful. And in the case of underrepresented groups, re that repeated exposure to leadership that looks like you, that counters the stereotypes that we may hold on to about who belongs where. So overriding those biases and showcasing culturally competent leadership and inclusive leadership, that sets a standard for the sector and for the entire labor market at large, I would argue, because it promotes that area of work as viable um, in the long term for all kinds of people. It can change people's preferences, even about themselves and what they're capable of. Right. Interesting. Okay. So that's five. Shall we go on to the final one? Now we're on to lesson number six. And this is about implicit biases. It's something that we all have and it's time that we recognize this. So as employers, um, they may want to be fair and give equal opportunities to people, but we're human, so we're susceptible to these implicit biases. There's still inequity in hiring and there's studies that show this. There um, racial inequities. There have been some resume audits that are done. Um, so what this means is people send resumes where people have the same qualifications, but depending on the name and what race they signal, um, they'll receive different callback rates. So when you think about these biases that exist out there, um, obviously we need to counter them. 
And I'll just give you some other examples of biases that we may have. So when we think of managers, we might think men. And because we're in manufacturing, we might think white men because that's what we typically see. So when you think about, just think about any of the leaders out there within manufacturing, I challenge you to think of one racialized woman. And let me know if you can, prior to reading our report, if you can. So it's a bit harder to think of a racialized woman in the North American context. That may be a bias that we have. And then again, with another example, who's competent. So there are a lot of STEM jobs within manufacturing, um, but again, we might think of men because historically, the other talent pools may not have yet been a part of this workforce. So we might be unintentionally excluding strong talent. So really addressing and countering these implicit biases gives us more access to talent. Um, and in this case, we're suggesting that racialized women are a portion of this talent pool. Some ways to address and counter them is really to diversify your hiring committee, um, to standardize your application forms, give less weight to names on your application forms, and other stuff like that. See, to me, number six is almost the hardest one to, to overcome because it, it almost feels like we're hunting ghosts. We're, we're trying to find biases that, we're, we, that we, by nature of those biases, we can't really be aware of them, right? Like, like you mentioned before. Who wants to be a journeyman? Would any of you three ladies like to be a journeyman? No? It's good money. Be a journeyman. No? Only because I have one in the house. But it's only <laughs> because I have that representation. Like, I've seen it, right? So I see, I've see, i seen the path and I know that it's possible. But if, I, if that wasn't the case, I don't think I would. I don't think I'd even consider it. So what are some of the biases? Okay, so we've gone through the list. Now I'd kind of like to go a little off book here. Because, I mean, look, I'm a 40-something-year-old guy. I know I have biases, but I don't know what they are. How do I find them out? What, how do I, how do I, let's just say me, I want to, I don't own a company, but like, how do I look for these biases? So there are definitely a lot of implicit bias training sessions that you can take a part of. And I know a lot of organizations are hopping on that. There is some research that suggests there are no long-term effects of these trainings, but it does help give you awareness of what they are so that you can actively try to counteract them. Interesting. And who's offer, who offers these training courses? Like, is it a company or is it like a government or a cert, like a... I mean, I don't know if we can drop names in this podcast, but Google has one that's free and available online. Uh, yeah. But I think the most, <laughs> the most important thing is to use um, any trainings that are evaluated because there are a lot of companies out there that offer trainings that have not yet been evaluated, right? So look at what's been evaluated, what has shown to have some kind of change in people. But again, like I said, there have been studies that show that the long-term effects, we can't really change our implicit biases because after all, they're unconscious to us, right? But we can be aware of them. And by being aware of them, can we manually act around them? We can set up practices that and policies that help us circumvent them. Okay. So if, if we know that through... Um, for example, racialized women, there aren't that many in management, and we typically don't associate racialized women as leaders, then maybe we can have some kind of program specific for, specifically for them. Interesting. So speaking as a white guy, and speaking on behalf of other white guys who I've had this conversation with, to some of them, if it sounds like you're taking a job away from one person, giving it to another person, that's not what this is. So can we, can we address some of that a little bit here? Because I know that there are people, if they've gotten this far in the episode that are probably thinking, Oh God, okay. They're going to take jobs away from, from so-and-so and give it to there and there and whatever, but that's not what this is. 
Okay, so uh, I think it's a common concern for folks that adding seats to a table means that they have to sacrifice their own elbow room. And that is not the point of the report. The point of the report is presenting opportunities to correct, like Talissa was saying, the historical exclusion while also solving your labor shortage. Shannon, did you come up with it that quote on your own? Please tell me that's yours. Sorry, what? What was the quote? People, the elbow room? That was... I think I've heard it. I know I've heard it somewhere. So I don't, I don't know who to credit, but I know I heard it and stuck that's with me great. ever since. Every time I hear, yes, yeah. So every time I hear that, I recognize it's a very common concern, but it is a nuanced issue that requires nuanced solutions, and it's going to have a lot of nuanced feelings associated with it. So I also recognize that that's a, a concern that you brought up. It's a common one. I think one thing we haven't really emphasized is that Ontario manufacturing has a labor shortage, and it's not just in the trades roles. It includes management roles. And so we really wanted to emphasize with this report that there is untapped talent potential within Ontario. So it's not so much about um, taking jobs away from other people. It's having people see that there are opportunities that they may not have thought they had a place or had a role in to belong in. So here's one of my, I think, implicit biases. I've, I grew up surrounded in my profession by women. I've had female bosses. I've been surrounded by, I'm currently surrounded by females. I've never seen that imbalance, but I, I, my field is communications, public relations. And I feel as though, you know, growing up in that, you kind of feel like, what are you guys talking about? You won. Everything's great. You want a job? Go, go work in manufacturing. What are you going to do? Can you run a machine? Yeah, go for it. But that's not really the reality, is it? Um, I think that's it, it brings it back to the first point that we touched on, which is the importance of, of data um, and even having these conversations. Um, in our first report, uh, the gender diversity uh, report that we launched in, in February, we, we saw that, okay, there's about 50% of the workforce that is, is uh, woman. In manufacturing, um, it's, it's 29%. But instead of looking at that as like, Oh, this is this is sad. Look at it as an opportunity um, now, right? Uh, to correct something that has historically been the case, um, we saw that it has historically been twenty nine percent over time. So how have we? How can we now, in a position where we, um, you know, after COVID nineteen, we're thinking about we need to strengthen our manufacturing workforce? How do we do that? We include people. We, we give um, give a, we provide a platform for people who didn't have a voice before to start to speak, to get involved, and to thrive. Because it's not just about um, even uh, providing jobs, but even providing opportunities for advancement. Um, so it, it's correcting that 4.6 percent of management that's a racialized woman right now, and and seeing how we can you know further strengthen our um, our manufacturing. Uh, our manufacturing workforce. And something that's important as well, too, is that studies um, have shown, at least uh, what we touched on in the report, is that you benefit from having a diverse uh, group of talent within a room. Um, and it's a, it brings it back to that perspective sharing the importance of that um, when you're creating value for society through an important sector like manufacturing itself. Actually, that's an important point. I remember that from the press release. We are optimistic mm-hmm. that things can improve and those companies that do figure out how to access that up until now untapped talent pool, they will have a competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. 
And for companies that are literally crawling over themselves looking for a competitive advantage, I think this might be a, an excellent opportunity. Because, I mean, from what I've seen in this report, these steps are very clear. The lessons are very clear. And with seemingly, I don't want to say minimal effort because it's not minimal effort, but with a smart application of effort in changing some, maybe some of the wording in your applications, you may actually be able to access this like little seam of talent that up until now has been completely untapped. Is that accurate to say? So I, what you were saying does sound accurate. I refer to them as adjustments. Like the manufacturing sector now has these adjustments that they'll have to make um, because now they're promoting manufacturing as a viable field, but they will have to make those adjustments in order to deliver on that promise that it's a good field for people to enter, for all people to enter right. into. So where this report comes in, it tells you some of those lessons or those adjustments. I like it. This has been uh, this has been an informative uh, process from start to finish, both in terms of getting the uh, the report ready and this podcast. I'm still learning. My takeaway from this has been, even if I don't become an expert on the subject, I now know a lot more of what I don't know. So I want to thank you for... Taking, I want to thank you for being inspired enough to actually write the report. I want to thank you for taking the time to join me today in August for this interview. And um, I look forward to continuing this discussion because I don't think we're done, are we? No, there's a lot more to be done. And just to piggyback off of what you just said, like the manufacturing sector has all of this potential. And we really hope that companies and anyone listening receives these lessons as the opportunities that they are to improve and kind of help the sector actualize the potential that it has. So that is our hope. Very good. Talissa, Eva, Shannon, I want to thank you again. And uh, yeah, looking forward to the next time we can chat. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Thanks Nick. Nick.